I made peace very early on as a creative that I will never be truly comfortable with anything that I do. Creativity for me is also sensitivity in a world where no one is listening. We were okay. We were suitably mediocre. Welcome to The Imposterous. The Imposterous is hosted by me, Graham Drew, and Michael Knox two rather insecure frauds who will be exploring the motivating and debilitating experiences we all have with imposter syndrome, with a sneaky suspicion that it might just be your superpower, if you let it. Soviet female who make tea? No, I'm not doing that. I am, like most creative people, full of self-doubt. It's where self-doubt sort of festers, really, advertising. Michael and I thought it'd be good to do a review, because that's what people with podcasts do. And as we've often said, Michael and I really don't know what we're talking about. We're just interested. And on this episode, we have a special guest who really does know what she's talking about. Our guest is Rachel Lowndes, and she is an imposter syndrome specialist. And even more interesting than that, she's ex-advertising. She's done the hard yards at places like Droga and McCann and Leo's. And so she has a unique perspective on a lot of the episodes that have gone before. And in this episode, you'll hear us talking about key points from some of our key guests and I think it might be my favourite episode, actually. Um, I hope you find it interesting. Unfortunately, Michael's also on the call, but there's, you know, there's some things we can't do anything about. Love you, Michael. Have you peeled off the golden ribbon yet? Or are you going to do yet. that live? Not yet. Well, do you, do you, you like to do that when you're on your own, though, don't you? <laughs> so... I bought this 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 morning from Officeworks, and they're very welcome to advertise in the Imposterous. And sitting next to this pack of poster notes was Mr. Sticky Notes. And it reminded me of a time that I sat next to someone in advertising, and I was very much Mr. Sticky Notes, and he very much thought he was the poster note guy. I send my warm regards to him. Should he be listening? So, Rachel Lowndes, welcome. Uh, to the imposterous and welcome to 2022. I was looking at your LinkedIn description yes. of yourself mm-hmm. and I wrote down the words imposter syndrome specialist, yeah. which I guess is a bit of an oxymoron and we're just interested to know how many words you got through before you agreed that you should use the word specialist and that you're a confidence <laughs> and mindset coach helping ambitious women achieve, I guess, to, to their potential. And you've also, to do a double you know, whammy on this, spent a lot of years working in advertising agencies in roles that kind of have different functions, but um, organising creatives and how they use their time. So you've obviously done a lot of coaxing of creatives into believing that, yes, yes, you can take on this extra brief. Yes, you can um, have two briefs on the go at once. You are an amazing person. You can achieve that. So welcome um, to the Imposterous, Rachel. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And yeah, Happy New Year to you both as well. So Rachel, why do you do what you do? What made you leave advertising and jump into this? Okay, well, I mean, as uh, Michael pointed out, I have been in advertising for a long time. And uh, it's interesting you pulled out the specialist word there as well, because you're right, I did go through a few iterations before I landed there. Uh, I didn't feel very comfortable about calling myself an expert yet, which is, of course, an indicator of being an imposter because you don't want to put yourself out by, um, you know, saying you're something that you don't really think that you are immediately. But um, I had never heard of imposter syndrome until one day when I was working at McCann and someone came in to talk about it. And I was like, oh, my goodness, 
that is me. And then I looked around the room and, uh, you know, majority, it seemed that the majority of the room also felt the same way. They were kind of all, you know, nodding heads and going, oh, that sounds familiar. So it, it really made me think about my career and, you know, if we we're all winging it, should I be looking for something more worthy to be doing? And I've, I've kind of, I had kind of lost my passion a bit for the industry after being in it for 25 years. And so I was really looking for something else to do. And I think um, you may have heard this before, but quite a lot of people, particularly in account service, uh, will always be saying, I really want to do something else. I want to get out of advertising. And so we never really know what we want to be doing, but there does seem to be that notion that we want to be out of it. And so it made me wonder also as a creative, how do you survive when everything you do is up for scrutiny, right? So, and I know that I am still very challenged by that notion um, as well. So that kind of propelled me into going, I want to know a bit more about this. I want to do coaching because as Michael rightly pointed out, you know, when you're working with creatives, you do have to coax them into doing work. Quite a lot of that is around, you can do this, it's fine, we'll work it out, you know, and just kind of working out solutions all the time for not just the creative team, but also the account service team. So I kind of wanted to take those skills and put them into something good. And as I mentioned, most people don't know what they want to do when they leave advertising or how to leave advertising. And so I pulled those two things together and and that's why I'm now doing what I'm doing. Can I ask you about scrutiny, Mm -hmm. the the constant scrutiny that creatives particularly or or the industry is put under by uh, general public clients or themselves, which do you think is more harmful or more preventing people moving forward, that scrutiny? Well, it's the belief within yourself that you don't think that you have done a good enough job, so your own personal scrutiny, because at the end of the day, you don't know what other people are thinking. And so I think it's around developing those skills of um, turning that fear and those self-doubts into something that inspires and excites you and just letting go of the fact that other people might be judging you. Yeah, they might be, but so what? Just continue doing what you're doing and, and that taking that scrutiny, because you are up for scrutiny, particularly when you've got something that, like art, basically creative is art, right? So, you know, anyone can have an opinion on it. No opinion on it is definitely right. It's not factually right most of the time because it's an idea. So you can't really prove or disprove that that is wrong or right. So... You kind of just got to allow yourself to go with the flow and trust yourself and believe in yourself and developing that belief. I think that's so interesting because um, you're right. We work in a, an industry where what we do is totally subjective. So therefore, mm-hmm. there is no sort of binary yes or no, this is great or this isn't great. It's basically mm-hmm. who's got the strongest personality wins kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, the ego, yeah. <laughs> so, Rachel, you've um, done us the favour and thank you very much of listening to some episodes. And I'm really interested in your opinion on some of the comments that you've heard and, and how they've affected you or what they've made you think. And just wondering if there were any in particular that stood out. Well, I mean, I really loved Neil's episode because he gave some really, really sage advice at the, at the start of his um, his episode. So he has challenged the whole imposter syndrome. I mean, I don't really feel like he has imposter syndrome just from listening to what he said because, you know, he seems very confident and very sure of himself and there's nothing wrong with that because you do 
you know, you need that to be successful. You need to believe in yourself. And I think it's fair to say some people are more on brief than others. Yeah. yeah. You know, Nils talks about um, that making work is important and makes a creative feel validated, right? And he advises to not compare yourself to others. Um, and there was something he said about like eclipsing, like he wanted to eclipse, I want to eclipse you, which I thought was amazing. Like just like that passion behind that. I kind of spent years caring very deeply about what I did, but ultimately feeling like somehow I just still, whatever I did wasn't quite as important or quite as cool or quite as respected as some other people. And I would arguably say that some of those other people were people, being honest, that that didn't work as hard, that didn't want it as much and, and weren't as clever, right? So it's just calling it, okay? And I think we've all been in a place like that where people like that are, are being rewarded and celebrated and you're like, what the fuck is going on? The reason I explain that is... um. You know, I don't want to be like everyone else, but maybe because I spent years looking at the seventh floor at Abbott Mead or the, you know, creative sending me emails going, you know, chain of command. Literally, that happened once. Kind of going, you know what? I don't want to be as good as you. I want to be far better than you. I want to fucking eclipse you, man. I want to make you look like a fucking dinosaur. Also, you know, the people that you want to eclipse, are you might see them as like like uh, someone to compare with and be competitive with, but... If you take that, because that's a kind of a fear, like comparing yourself to someone is like reiterating the notion that you're not good enough. Whereas if you take that comparison or competitiveness and turn it into inspiration, so great, that person has done this. How inspiring. How can I build on that? What can I do to make that better? You know, how can I add something to that so that you are then be becoming inspiring yourself? And so it's more of a positive approach and, and a confidence building thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And and you you talked about it before about helping ambitious women. Mm. Do you think that women are less likely to want to beat each other? Yeah, I mean, I think female traits uh, are that they want to do something for the greater good. Like we act in a way that is collaborative because when you get into the workplace, females don't tend to do that. They tend to want to work with other people. They also feel like that peacocking, that notion of being a bit peacocky is not really um, an attribute that is seen as a good thing in, in women. And uh, we probably need to change that a little bit because there's no there's no harm in being a little bit like big noting, talking yourself up, talking yourself up, owning your successes is a really good way to get over your imposter syndrome. So yeah, to answer your question, yes, I feel like there is a, a vast difference between how women and men approach the workplace and how that then feeds into imposter syndrome. Having spoken, having now that you've spoken about Nils, um, one of the quotes that stood out for me was Merle, mm. Jamie, talking about getting help to understand finance. Yeah. And this is something that resonates with me personally because I think what happens is we, for a long time in the industry, said things like creatives should lead agencies. Mm. But we put creatives in rooms with people who understood finances mm. and suddenly people with imposter syndrome were legitimate imposters trying to understand how to read a spreadsheet. What you're going to do, right? So when I got my global president role, oh my God, that's not exactly just a creative role. So I, I took on accounting lessons. I took on uh, sessions with finance. I, I wanted to learn it. I don't want to be the, mo- the stupid person in the room. Yes. Merle, Merle mentioned the idea of seeing an accountant on the side and getting help. And I'm just interested in imposter syndrome, syndrome and the benefit of mentors and how that can help. 
people. Yeah, so I mean, she mentioned that, you know, when when you're faced with a role that you don't know how to do, she went to an expert to get, um, she went to expert level to get the skills. So she sought out people who could help her and delegate and own that, you know, you don't have to be, you don't have to be amazing at everything. Like any leader does not have the ability to be 100% excelling at every single skill that is required in, in running a business, right? That's why businesses have CFOs. That's why they have, you know, other leaders to do certain things because your skill set is your skill set. And being a leader is about understanding that sometimes you can't do that. And so you need to bring in help. I think where the imposter syndrome part comes in is that quite a lot of us are perfectionists and we feel that we need to do everything ourselves to prove to ourselves that we are good enough. And that means not admitting that you can't do something or feeling that it's weak to ask for help. But that's the only thing you're doing by not asking for help and not admitting, you know, not admitting that you can't do something is self-perpetuating that those fears and doubts and that inner chat that you are not good enough. But actually admitting that you do need help and going seeking it is a really great way to build up more confidence in yourself because you're also creating that connection and that collaboration and you're showing a bit of vulnerability, which are all great leadership qualities. <laughs> I mean, do, do you think it's, because um, all we do, all we've done so far really is to speak to leaders and CCOs. Yeah. Maybe we need to address this whole imposter thing far earlier in people's career so that it kind of gets stamped out a lot earlier because, you know, we're talking about people that have already done it and actually... Is it something that maybe we just bring into the industry or try to help people when they're right at the beginning? Because that's when it's super hard because you haven't proved yourself yet. You haven't got your cabinet full of shiny things yet no. that can help you. You know, is it something you think that we should bring in a lot earlier? Yes, I do. Because, and you're right about what you said, like of all the people you've interviewed, uh, a lot of them have talked about how they've overcome it. Yeah. And not really gone into the detail of what it felt like at the time, right? I mean. Fran was amazing when she talked about some of her stuff, you know, considering herself lucky uh, to get the job and reading of the poetry. I mean, I just thought that was amazingly funny. You know, it's just so good. And she also talked about, which is a really interesting um, thought, is this presenting. So it's called the spotlight effect, right? So the idea when you present is that we place so much importance on what we think others think of us. When in actual fact, the amount of time people spend thinking about us is minimal. Um, with dialogue writing, but in a presentation, like the, the, the key insights, I think, is that and I, when I started going to some of our clients' offices and seeing how deathly they were, like one of them was literally in the flight path of our Tambo Airport, I think, like next to a belching smokestack. <clears throat> um, and you go... Do you know what? This is probably the most fun thing that's going to happen to this person today. We're going to come in and we're going to read scripts. I'm going to do silly voices. So show them a good time. Do the silly voices. Do the accents. Act out the scripts. Sing if you have to. Uh, They may not like the work, but they won't hate you. And I I don't know. Maybe that just reveals my own insecurity, but that made me feel better. So... (laughs) We tend to think about ourselves and what others are thinking about us way more than they actually are, which is a bit of a weird paradox, right? 
actually you take that spotlight effect off you and think about it like reframe it into well I'm here to help people understand things and they haven't heard my ideas before and so I'm bringing something to the table I'm doing something for the greater good that kind of takes that spotlight effect off you as a person and brings it out into a bigger wider world and this is particularly good for females who often don't like to going back to that big noting that peacocking things like to reframe it in that way but yes I do think you need to bring it into uh, the industry much earlier because you know as a creative like I say it's you're up for scrutiny I don't know if I could handle the criticism of I mean I've sat in reviews and just heard some like really full-on things people handing over you I'd be terrified handing over a script going uh what do you think you know of course that is a terrifying experience because you're putting almost your heart and soul on the line, especially when you're first in the industry, right? You are literally putting your heart and soul on the line. You haven't learned how to take those criticisms or build on that constructive criticism to turn it into something that you can then take as either an opinion that you can reject or accept, build on, be inspired by, or just move on from. You haven't learned that yet. And Rachel, you mentioned that there are a number of like archetypes or, or types of um, imposters. And I'm just wondering, is there any parallel between any of the people that we've had on and some really quite strong, you are this kind of imposter? Well, okay, so the five types are perfectionist, natural genius, soloist, superhuman, and the expert. Now, I think most people would probably identify with being a perfectionist, right? I'm all, I think Michael and I are all four, actually. <laughs> I mean, I don't. There was five. There's five, yeah. Yeah, there's one you missed, Guru. Guru the mathematician. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, as, an, as a perfectionist, you've got impossibly high standards and you feel like a failure when you don't reach them. You procrastinate over the details. Quite often, uh, things aren't done well enough for you, so you feel you have to do them yourselves, and this can turn into micromanagement. And sometimes, like, I don't know if you've ever been, I've been in this situation many times where you're pitching, that the idea just keeps getting fiddled with. It's like, when is it just going to be done is good enough? And you will never think it's going to be good enough if you are a perfectionist. And so, and the natural genius, very similar to perfectionists, but they feel like a failure if they don't master something on the first try. So if you haven't come up with the winning idea on the first brainstorm, you may go, I can't do this, right? You know, but obviously as a creative, you can't do that. That's your job. But it's that kind of thing of picking up an instrument and being able to play Beethoven straight away or something like that. And if you can't do it, then you feel like I've got to quit. I'm a failure. I'm done, right? Then you've got a superhuman. So this is someone who literally thinks that they have to do everything. And this goes back to a little bit back to what Michael said about the finances, right? As a creative, you do not need to know everything about the finances. Your job is to be a creative. That's what you're employed for. And there are other people who can do the financial stuff. But as a superhuman, you feel like if you can't master all of those other skills on your own without asking for help, then you are a failure. And that's that's how you feel about not being able to do those other skills. And then as a soloist, you are afraid to ask for help. Right? So seeking help means that you are exposing yourself as a fraud, as someone who does not have enough information and not smart enough. So that's your, your main kind of sabotaging behaviour, not asking for help. And as an expert, you feel like you need to learn more and more and more. You'll never know enough. You will never know enough to be good enough. 
and that you have somehow tricked people into giving you a job because you're not truly qualified enough and you must keep learning. And people like this quite often have a lot of degrees, a lot of certificates, that kind of thing. So those are the, the main archetypes, um, and they were developed by Dr. Valerie Young, who is an imposter syndrome specialist, who I, I am actually going to be training with. So you might see yourself in some of those. There's usually one or two dominants. I mean, personally, for me, I'm a natural genius and an expert, and that's something that I have had to work on overcoming. But I think once you know those things, those sabotaging behaviours that are linked to it, and becoming self-aware, like self-awareness is really key to managing your imposter syndrome and those doubts and fears. So once you become aware of them, you can start recognising them, actually catch your inner chat when you're talking to yourself about these things and go, okay, I'm going to stop that. I'm going to reframe my thinking and think about it in a different way, choose a different perspective. I, I really liked your self-awareness thing because we do, and also the language around sabotaging behaviours, because we are our own worst enemies, aren't we? Mm -hmm. And often, you know, a lot of our guests have talked about that inner voice. And that inner voice is often subconscious. I mean, or you might literally have an inner voice. Yeah. <laughs> Mine's Welsh and it's quite annoying. <laughs> Does it have a name? <laughs> Daffid, yes, really annoying. But you do, I mean, I, I, I often sort of, it's sort of, after it's happened, I can often, I'm aware of those sort of, um, those sabotaging behaviour, but it's always after the fact. It's always after like, fuck me, that was hard. That mm. was so hard. And then it's just like, yeah, but you made your life a lot harder than it needed to be, but it's after the fact. Exactly. And I think the the inner voice, your inner chat fuels your imposter syndrome, as you say, right? So mm. you, need to, you need to understand, well, to start recognising it for a start when it happens. And we're mostly not aware of our own inner chat. You know, we're so used to hearing our inner voice going, oh, you can't do that. You, That's rubbish. You need to do better. This, this is shit, you know, like whatever it is. All of that inner chat just perpetuates the fact that you don't feel so good about yourself or you're not good enough for whatever you're doing at the time. So it's really starting to listen to that. In some cases, even writing down what are the things that you say to yourself and then writing next to it, what could I say? What could I say that's a more positive aspect of that? The imposter syndrome tends to come up when you're doing something new or when something's challenging, yeah. right? Yeah. And so it's about harnessing the inner chat because we have something like 60,000 to 90,000 thoughts a day and something ridiculous like 70, 60 or 70% of them are the same thoughts and quite a lot of them are negative. They're the same negative thoughts that roll around in our minds. And so when you have that moment where you're starting something new and it's a bit challenging, that's where you're going to have those imposter moments where you're like, I can't do this. I'm not smart enough. You know, I can't master this. And you can disassociate yourself from it. You could say to yourself, oh, that's not me talking. That's, you know, Debbie Downer in my head having a chat. I can just say to her, no, thanks, Debbie. Not now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm going to concentrate. And disassociation is a really good way to deal with it like I know it sounds a little bit strange I'm not talking about multiple multiple personality disorders here but um, as a technique it can be useful to name your inner saboteur your inner critic so that you can then say that's not me I believe that I am good at these things my inner saboteur is telling me I'm not and it's not time for them to speak so it's kind of taking them away from you that's that really interesting so you kind of you're by giving that inner or that negative inner voice and identity, you're kind of saying to yourself that that's not me. Yeah. You? Yeah. That's super interesting. 
<laughs> I like that. I'm going to think about what I'm going to call mine. So, Rachel, I'm going to put you on the spot. Did you listen to Kitty's interview? I did listen to Kitty's, yeah. What did you think? I'm interested from a cultural perspective. The double whammy. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what she described there um, of being in a minority, so Asian and female, in a very white-dominated environment, white male-dominated environment, sorry, is a common trigger for imposter syndrome. At the very, very, very beginning, when the creative director, executive creative director, all the account people are like senior people are white Caucasians, male, uh, and then some, you know, Chinese people, usually male. Actually, I was sometimes called into meetings to be the token Asian and token female, you know, appearing in front of clients saying, oh, our agency has diversity. We have local insights. So I, I kind of understand my role that they want me to be in. So I can either feel um, offended or I can take advantage of it. And I took the letter, of course. Being the token female Asian in the room, I always express things that um, I want to say rather than keeping quiet, the subservient female who make tea. No, I'm not doing that. So. You are basically um, a stranger in a strange land. You know, not only is she female, which I think I don't know when she first got into the industry, but I imagine at the time she talked about, you know, I'm not making the tea. I'm not <laughs> I'm not getting, you know, this, that, any other. So she was really she really stood her ground around being I am here to be a creative female or not. And I can offer a different perspective. But she's a stranger in a strange land. You know, she's in a white, white male-dominated environment in an Asian country, and she felt like the token Asian, which she was. But she took that and kind of made it her own, which I think is amazing. But I doubt she knew that at the time. It's something like she's probably self-reflected on and realised that, you know, that was her situation. And that is a common trigger. Is it about confidence more than anything else? Yeah, it is. It's that belief in yourself that you can do it. And that's where confidence comes from, because confidence is about mastery. Um, that's what confidence is. It's the belief that you can master something. I want to talk about that fake it to you make it thing as well, actually, because um, I understand why uh, we use it. But it also fake it to you make it is a little bit negative because it does perpetuate that you're not good enough thing, like you're actually still a fraud. From your subconscious mind point of view, if you still use the language of fake it, that you are faking it, you are still self-perpetuating the belief that you are a fraud, right? So it is, I mean, I know it's a, it's a phrase, it's coined, it's used in the vernacular quite a lot, you know, whether we move away from it or not, I don't know. But I, I just wanted to bring that up as like, you know, yeah. a thought process that perhaps faking it is not really what we're saying, we're saying build self-belief, Visualize yourself doing a good, good job. And Nils talked about some great concepts of visualizing. I thought they were wonderful. You know, those are the kind of things that we use in coaching uh, to help believe that belief, like feeling, feeling what it feels like to deliver that presentation, to get that round of applause. You know, like what does that feel like? And then you start to believe in yourself that it's possible for you because your subconscious mind does not know the difference between what's real and imagined and so if you feel the feelings and the emotion around it, then uh, what happens is your brain, you know, I don't know if you know much about neuroplasticity, but your brain creates new neural pathways, which then 
activates your reticular activating system, which is what your brain does to go and look for evidence that those things are real and happening to you. And that will then become your outer world. There's a lot more to it than that. But <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because I think we talk about on here the idea of acknowledging self-doubt and trying to find a way to turn that into some kind of fuel, mm. like self-doubt being the motivation. Yeah. But your point that forget self-doubt, the uh, you have a lot of points. <laughs> Ours is the <laughs> one that's one-dimensional, but your one of your points is forget self-doubt because the visualisation of success is more powerful than the negative side of what imposter syndrome might motivate you to be. Be aware of where your imposter syndrome comes from and why it exists for you, but also understand that you can control your outcome and any perspective in your life by visualising yourself doing well in something. So I'm sort of going, never mind believing yourself, I don't really know what that means. But I do believe in a meet. you know, Graham, maybe the right way to think about that is picture yourself in a meeting room with a bunch of great people having steered some work, watching something play back and imagine that that was you and you've done that and you guided it and you're all very proud. Picture that, 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 that can happen, you know, and I'm like, that, that's sort of what I'm about really. And trying to give others that, Try, this sense of energy is, is, is contagious. The energy of fear is also contagious. Thing, right? So turning that fear, if you like, into excitement because fear and excitement actually lives in the same part of the brain. And so when you understand you have a choice about how you feel and you can harness your mind in the way you want it to act, you can turn those fears around. So reframing them into a different perspective, right? So, you know, when you have that feeling of fear, you, you can ask yourself, okay, what is it I'm afraid of? What's happening in my mind? What do I think is going to happen? And on a scale of one to 10, how likely is that going to happen? And what can I think instead? Right? So say, for example, you're about to do a presentation and your mind is running around with Fear-based thoughts like, what if I forget it? What if I, what if it doesn't make sense? What if I mess it up? What if they don't like it? Well, they try to rethink and reframe that with, well, what if they do like it? You know, I, am I giving information that no one else knows? And people are here to hear my ideas and I'm doing it for the team. So changing that positive, uh, sorry, that negative into a positive and visualizing yourself giving a really good presentation that people respond to and you go in then with a higher level of confidence. And even if you do mess up, no one's going to notice. You probably won't even notice because you've built a level of confidence in yourself, lost that layer of self-doubt and delivered something amazing. Yeah, Fran makes the comment about the fact that what, what, whatever, whatever it is, they, they, they might not like the work, but they won't hate you. And I think I'd heard it years ago in a um like a presentation skills course which was was the effect of everyone wants you to do well because everyone will feel really embarrassed if you don't yeah right so I, I i think i think even both of those notions are a bit old school to what you're saying which is like to push it even further into the positive which is you know imagine what it's mm -hmm. like when everyone likes what you're doing as opposed to don't make people feel awkward by forgetting your lines I was going to add something else, actually what Fran said as well, actually. Hey, Fran. Um, is um, is her, her whole thing around, um, I think it started with, if you, if, you don't, if you can't sell it to yourself, 
then you're not going to be able to sell it to anybody else, which kind of feeds into what you were saying, Michael. It's like, you know, if if you believe it enough, you can make other people believe it. But if you go in not believing it, then it's pretty big ask for then to expect everyone else in that room to believe it as well. But I'm glad, Michael, that you brought up the other one, because I think it's a really important one about, especially about presentations, is that, you know, presentations are a show. It's like going to the theatre. And if you think about it that way, no one in the audience wants to see a bad show. No one in the audience wants to not be entertained. No. And actually, when I first started out on this coaching journey, a really good friend of mine, Cam Blackley, who you may or may not know at MSC Saatchi, said, gave me that piece of exact piece of advice that, you know, when I'm when you are presenting, think about the fact that people are there to be entertained and to listen to your to what you've got to say. They want to know. And I'm like, I just had not ever thought about it like that. Yeah. And so that really changed things for me, that little nugget of advice, right? So seeking advice when you have those fears is, is a good thing because you damn be damn sure that a lot of people around you have had those similar experiences themselves and know how to get through it. And and also Fran said something really amazing, uh, which is giving... Fran's, get, Fran's getting too much credit. Can we... Uh, <laughs> But she did say giving into your fear is indulging in your own excuses. And I really love that, you know, like it's just indulgent. And, you know, someone's got to do something. Someone's got to take control and act and make a decision. And it's detrimental to your progress and success to remain wallowing in your feelings of inadequacy. And, you know, not making a decision is also making a decision, whether you like it or not. (laughs) It's still an action. Yeah. I'm wondering if there was um, anyone else who stood out um, for you that you wanted to, to comment on. Well, I did listen to Vicky Maguire. So I used to work with Vicky. I love how she's also like an outsider in a, a new world kind of thing because she didn't go to ad school, right? She's got all of the kind of markers for imposter syndrome. Didn't go to ad school, no relatives in the business, first of her kind, right? A stranger in a strange land and fish out of water. So she she was a bricklayer's daughter. Like anything to do with the corporate world just did not seem to match with her background, right? The very, you know, the very nature of being a creative can make you feel vulnerable and inadequate, especially if you're not formally trained. But look at where she is. But imposter syndrome is interesting, isn't it? Because... I made peace very early on as a creative that I will never be truly comfortable with anything that I do. She said, I've made peace with the fact that I will never be truly comfortable with anything I do. And that's the letting go part. And that's really- it's okay not to be comfortable with what you do. You just acknowledge that you're never going to be that way. Well, if it helps you survive, yeah. If it's if it stops you from remaining stuck and using your perfectionist tendencies, like if you want to be, and I think what she might be alluding to there is trying to be a, a perfectionist at everything, right? If you have that perfectionist tendency, you do have to be comfortable with letting it go and done is better than none and it's not 100% perfect. You have to allow yourself to do that. And so I think... That's what I think that she is saying with that particular quote. This has been fantastic talking to you, Rachel. Graham, were there any comments you wanted further clarify? I want to know that I want to know what you'd call your inner voice. That's that's the main thing that I'm thinking about right now. Debbie. Debbie Downer. Debbie Downer? Yeah. Mike, Michael? I don't know. Okay, stay tuned, listeners, next week where Michael will be revealing the um <laughs> Super All cool. Right. That was brilliant, Rachel. Thanks, Rachel. So no problem. Much. Thank you.
Thank you. Um, and if anyone ever wants to talk to me about imposter syndrome, then pop along to my website and you can book in a time to chat with me um, over virtual cuppa. My website is theposcologycollective.com. That's P-O-S-C-H-O-L-O-G-Y collective.com. If they say the imposterous, do they get a 5% discount? Uh, <laughs> yeah, they why not? Smart, right? <laughs> no, I just feel like we'd be more professional if we said that. All right. Well, this Thank is you, Thanks so much. Thank you very much. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Thank you very much for listening to The Imposterous. Apart from our fine imposterous guests, none of this would have been possible without the help of the following wonderful frauds. Firstly, Andrew Stevenson at We Love Jam Studios, best music and sound house in Australia. Without his help, this would have been a series of WhatsApp messages with emoji responses. And also Hilton Mode, who has graced us with his theme music that you're listening to now. If you would like to catch up on all the other podcasts in The Imposterous series, visit theimposterous.com. You can also get in touch with us via email.